Shrink Wrap Radio number 872, Family Therapist Dr. Mark Karras on Religious Trauma. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous it's all in your head and now here's your host dr dave my guest today is dr mark gregory karras we're going to be discussing his book the diabolical trinity healing religious trauma due to believing in a wrathful God, tormenting hell, and a sinful self. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Mark Karras, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. It's great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, You've written a powerful and engrossing book, The Diabolical Trinity. What Mm. What led you to write this book? I, um, well, right. So the, the diabolical Trinity healing religious trauma from a wrath of God, uh, tormenting hell and a sinful self. It's quite a mouthful for sure. Yes, really. Uh, quite <laughs> an ear. I know it's, uh, but I think, uh, so part of it starts with my own story and my own, what I would call religious trauma. So really religious trauma is really an emerging kind of, uh, field. Um, well, well, let's get we into can, your own personal story. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I grew up with a lot of, I mean, I think every family's dysfunctional at some level. Mine was a little off the charts. Uh-huh. Mom was a, a drug addict. She wound up uh, dying from a, a drug overdose. A father mentally ill. My great-grandmother died in a mental hospital. And my younger brother has uh, paranoid schizophrenia, and he'll be in prison for life. So wow. that's the milieu in which I grew up in. Yeah. And so not religious at all. But then I, um, I was a very, I, I was a cutter, uh, very depressed, had no understanding of what it meant to have a future. Like it, but it didn't even compute. Um, it was so, and then at, at some point it was culminating to a point of it getting a pretty dark in my world to the point of wanting to kill myself by very twisted means. Uh, we'll keep it a G-rated podcast right now. But um, who, yeah. who raised and, you? Who raised you? Sure. So my my mom. Well, my well, my parents divorced when I was six. So oh. stayed with my mom. I think up till about the age of eleven, and then a little bit with my dad, and then a little bit with my mom, and then a little bit with my dad, and uh, then yeah, I think we were out on our own around eighteen. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was a pretty wild experience and so within that sort of uh, environment 
my twin brother, I have a twin brother. He would tell oh, me wow. about, he would tell me about Jesus. I was in a progressive metal hardcore band at the time. I think that music really kind of say, quote, saved me really when I was younger. And then he would tell me about Jesus and I'd be like, shut up, F you. I don't want to hear about Jesus, you know, anything like that. And then I had just fast track here, a lot of wild dreams and experiences the point of me being alone by myself. And I remember the last words, I say BC, before Christ, was I'm sick and tired of sick being sick and tired. If you're God, if you're real, show yourself to me. That was sort of the last sort of, and I consider myself a master deconstructionist. Uh, I've deconstructed every element of my faith, especially as we fast forward to religious trauma and what I've experienced in the church. But it's hard to deconstruct that experience of being enveloped with a love that transcended my rational faculties and just crying hysterically. And, and that lasting for quite a bit of time. And that ultimately changed my life into a oneness Pentecostal church. And that was considered a cult by many uh, Christian organizations at the time. Men couldn't have facial hair. Women couldn't even trim their hair. Else that would be considered a sin, and they could be in danger of hellfire. I couldn't hang out or fellowship with uh, those who believed in the Trinity, and uh, I couldn't go to college. And it was a very constricting, controlling, yet some loving elements, because community was there. The pastor's wow. wife was a lovely uh, woman. But it, it, it took a toll where I got to the point where I couldn't even drink soda because I thought I would be defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit and thus be in danger of hellfire. So that's how like bound up in sort of religion and fear uh, that I was at the time. That's yeah. the toll it took. Yeah, wow. Uh, actually, yeah. Uh, uh, unless you were a regular listener of the show where I've shared some of my own history, uh, you would hmm. know that I have some history in that environment myself, which is partly why I was so eager to speak with you. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my grandmother was an evangelist and had a, a strong influence on me growing up. I, my parents had problems, and so I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house, uh, getting shipped there, and and you know, and and she was of a. I think she was not did not define herself as Pentecostal, but full gospel if i recall if i recall mm. correctly one of the mm. one of the splinter groups of which there were many little minor uh sure groups. apostolic uh, yeah yeah gospel. and uh, but you know she believed in uh speaking in tongues and uh divine healing and mm -hmm. and and that sort of thing so i i and she actually had an influence on where i went to school so that i went to a lot of uh, fundamentalist schools, both uh, mm -hmm. both uh, before high school and in high school, went to a fundamentalist uh, high school. And nice. so, but but I wasn't really traumatized by all of this the way that mm -hmm. you were. Um, yeah. Partly because there were leavening influences for me. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, my my parents at that time were uh, were. Um, more liberal. There, there weren't the tight controls at home. I could go. Mm. I could go to movies. I could listen to any kind of music that I wanted to. Uh, ah. I could re read a wide variety of books. So that 
always had, even though I, I had what I felt were like, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus probably more than once uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. when an altar call would come up. But, um, right. But I would say the um, the positive thing that I took away from mm-hmm. from my exposure to uh, to uh, that form of a Protestant religion was mm-hmm. um, an ethical sensibility. I think you know that some mm-hmm. kind of sense that uh, that it was important to um, to try to be a good person and. Uh, and also, I had experiences that made it easier for me to empathize with other people and listen to their problems, and sort of had that orientation all through uh, school. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a beautiful experience, and it does show the point that some people's theological and and church, uh, you know, treasures are another's theological and church trash. And now I, I think that there could be healthy religion and healthy spirituality. And it's so interesting that my twin brother, twin brother, lived with me, went through the same experiences that I did. He would say, Mark, I, I didn't experience any religious trauma. So it's so fascinating, which really is so I, I can't wait to research comes out on this. Uh, so it's a it's an emerging field of why some people are either predisposed or what's the correlation, uh, maybe self-compassion or attachment styles? What makes someone predisposed to experience yeah. religious trauma, hearing and experiencing the same thing, but whereas someone else could, you know, like me, really experience that religious trauma. And your brother was your, your, your genetic twin and, and identical yeah, twin? Yeah. Yep, I'm two minutes uh, older, but it's just fascinating to me. And I have a hunch, I mean, at least anecdotally from why me and him that happened. I could just say that for me, I was two minutes older, but I was more the older brother that had to take care of my family in the chaos, Uh very sensitive to cues, where my twin brother, actually, he was known for just disappearing. He would hide in a room or he stayed away from any conflict. But I, I think... Some people with religious trauma, I just find them to be more sensitive, more open, more expansive, creative, like really take seriously what you're about to tell me, because I really care and really genuinely want to uh-huh. do the right so thing. You, so so you sort of, even, even though it was only two minutes older, right. you, you, you sort of took on that role of, okay, I'm the yeah. older one, I'm going to be the responsible one. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So very yeah. extra sensitive to other people's pain and suffering and to want to do something about it. So sort of just very sensitive, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I even... Uh, yeah. I. Personally, I would also entertain a, a genetic possibility, even though, you know, I think uh, twin brothers, even though, you know, we don't fully understand all the ins and outs of, of genetics and genetics. Sure, can, epigenetics. Yeah, yeah, can lead to some very surprising uh, differences. Uh, so I, I would yeah. think that could have played a role, too. Um, so... Let's let's go down to, uh, the road a little further. Then, um, mm-hmm. well, tell us about 
when and how you self-identified as being traumatized? Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, I don't, I didn't have language uh, about this kind of stuff because it's fairly new. So just in the, in the history here, there's what we called spiritual abuse. So books on spiritual abuse, the understanding of cults, uh, authoritarian leaders uh, misusing their power and coercion and manipulation. And so the trauma coming from that aspect of it. And then we move forward to sort of uh, maybe Marlene Winnell's book, Leaving the Fold. She's sort of a grandmother to religious trauma. And then it got to this understanding that well, beliefs in and of themselves can be so impactful as to cause this uh, traumatized aspect to it. And so then people started using the word religious trauma. So I knew that I wasn't okay. I mean, I knew my fear response and uh, hypervigilance and anxiety and, you know, demons behind every bush and feeling like I have to go in a room and I have to plead the blood of Jesus, uh, you know, across doorposts because I was afraid if I didn't, somehow there'd be some negative effects or that, you know, God, if I didn't do the right thing, God could punish me in this life or the life to come. But it wasn't until I heard the word religious trauma. So this was probably three, four years ago. It wasn't until the last few years that an actual definition um, came about by uh, the Religious Trauma Institute and Reclamation Collective. The, and I love this definition, if I can share it with your listeners. It's the physical, emotional, or psychological response to religious beliefs, practices, or structures that is experienced by an individual as overwhelming or disruptive and yeah. has lasting adverse effects on a person's physical, mental, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So this has emerged as a a known and recognized. We know there are many forms of trauma, and this is coming right. to the lexicon now as, as yes. a rec- recognized form of trauma. That's correct. Yeah, you know, and there's know, a. I, re- I refer oh, to sure, my grandmother, my, my yeah. grandmother, who came from the hell and damnation school of thought. Uh, yeah. Uh, very loving to me, she made a lot of exceptions for me. But for mm-hmm. other people in the family, uh, uh, stepkids that she had raised and so on, she would uh, pray that God would uh, shake them over hellfire to where they could smell the, you know, let them smell the fire and, and brimstone, Lord, and and so that they'll come back to you. You know, so right. I heard that kind of prayer a lot. And I went to uh, tent meetings and so on, you know, where— Oof. Yeah, so I I saw the whole spectrum, uh, but there were I guess these other uh, uh, me you know and I came to I've come to realize that I had plenty of problems of my own although it took many years mm-hmm. to to uh, to recognize some of my own psychological issues, um, right? But I don't really blame any. Uh, any of that on religion per se, although I'm just, I have to think about that a little bit more. I can't. Ah, uh, yeah. The deleterious know, I, effects, the, uh, that are embedded. Because that idea is, is, was planted in my mind. You know, the, some of the, the sermons I would talk about fire insurance, you know, mm-hmm. you might as well believe because, uh, 
the alternative is you're going to go to hell. So, you know, it's just fire insurance. You know, maybe we're wrong, but you'll be you'll be glad you had this fire insurance. Uh, right. So that idea has always been in the probably somewhere in the back of my mind, you know, in a time of adversity or something. I might. It gives me pause for thought. Well, you know. Right. Right. I mean, how could how could not believe i mean it's a weird thing how could not believing in an angry punitive imperfection phobic god who sees all and knows all and who with a snap of a finger can violently punish us in this life if we do something wrong and can send us to a place called hell where we literally would not just die and be tortured for a few we're talking a hundred a hundred thousand trillion billion like eternal conscious torment, yeah. how can that not inflict any after effects with believing some kind of thing? Yeah, like yeah. well, particularly you know, it's, if, you, yeah. if you if you really take it in, if you're a sensitive yes. person, and yeah, and, you know, I could, I totally can see that. Yeah, I mean, it, maybe if we think of a, like an analogy of a, of a kid, I don't know. I mean, think of a, a parent who would be that authoritarian and punitive and you know and then you know the mom saying dad's gonna get you if you don't like the kid is it's gonna carry around that that fear and that trauma sure. internally for for the well for a long time yeah yeah and maybe the rest of their lives as you yeah. say yeah yeah so where were we where were we oh you you, you mentioned cults and uh it that had put me, you know, the, before you mentioned it, but when I read your story, mm. I immediately thought of cults because I've worked with people uh. in therapy who were uh, had been in a, in one sort of a cult or another, and mm. um, you know, and the real problem, the struggles they had with getting out of the cult because of the social support that they experienced there and the sense that right. if they left that community, then they would be totally on their own and they had never really had that experience of being oh, totally on their goodness. own. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, listen, we're, we are neurobiologically wired to connect with people. Yes. Our brains have evolved that these tribal brains to leave the tribe would literally mean banishment and death. Right. Right. So we learn to follow the rules and sing the songs and engage in the rituals and maybe some open creativity was okay, but you couldn't stray too far from the group's norms. And that's, we're, we're left with that. Like if we leave the tribe of our faith, it's dangerous. Uh, but not only is it compounded by the thought that if we left, that not only would we receive rejection from the community and thus being alone, but we could also feel that God would then be against us or hate us or be angry at us. And then if you're a Christian tribe who believes in demons, then people have been so afraid that it can open up their lives to the influence of the demonic realm. Yeah. Why? By being disobedient and not listening to, quote, God's word. So this has a lot of different nuances to these things. Yeah, my I keep coming back to my grandmother, who when she and my uh, grandfather would get in, he was actually a step grandfather, mm. uh, 
who she had converted in a tent meeting. He had been a drunkard and a reprobate, as she tells the story, you know, mm. and, and a gambler and so on. And, and then she led him to the Lord, and he totally uh, transformed his life, but was really under her thumb. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and uh, so when they they would get in a fight, and she would uh, uh, she would you know she would say I. Uh, I cast these demons out of you. You're being possessed right now. And, you know, and so mm-hmm. she would go down that path. And that's yes. very, very much of a double bind to be in, I imagine, when somebody's saying, well, yeah. you're, this is not you. you got a demon inside you. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about this in the book, but I've experienced it firsthand. And, and I, as a, as a side, just press the pause button. Uh, there could be listeners who could be hearing this, and by no means do I want to be judgmental or pathologize people's faith, right? Okay. So there could be listeners who really take these theologies and doctrines seriously. Yeah. And yeah. I just, and and all, all I want to say to that is, you know, I want people to be where they are and who they are. I'm just my task uh, as writing this book is there's a population. There's a group of people who are being traumatized by these things, by these doctrines. And and you just named another, if there's a pie chart of reasons why people could be affected, there's been people who now they've been, they shared this, so it's anecdotally, but they were traumatized because they thought, first of all, that their mental illness, they were possessed by a demon. Right. So it created such a fear response within themselves. They could never be okay. They then equated that God allowed that to happen. That gets into another doctrine of God allowing things and planning things and being an uber puppet master who has a f- control of all things and actions and reactions that happen. But to think that your depression is uh, is because of demons, right? That gets into fear because what door did I open that God would have allowed this to happen? And right. since it's not going away, there must be sin and I must be disobedient. So it's a compounding of shame. And then you have that self-criticism. And you can see how the suffering can be compounded, not to mention a splitting off of one's aspect of self. Because uh, I've been in prayer meetings where someone could feel lust or uh, they, they have sexual passions or anger towards somebody or depressed. I bind you spirit of lust to get out or I bind you spirit of anger. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it projects what's inside on metaphysical entities. And what's strange is that sometimes there are ameliorative effects because, you know, if you believe it's a demon and someone in the community touched you and you get the oxytocin and then it was cast out, wow, I feel free. So that, that can happen. But I think it's a disservice to human beings to not be able to identify and own and accept natural occurring human emotions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And this brings another uh, concerning story to mind, which is um, my mother got cancer and mm. uh, later in life, and uh, and she she uh, went to a uh, a healing uh, meeting with a, I'm, I think I'm blocking on her, on the evangelist's name, but you would probably know the name. Benny Hinn. No. It, was there a Marjorie Coleman? Ah, uh, Catherine Coleman. Catherine Coleman, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and I have a sister as well who who uh, called me and said, "Oh, David, mother's been healed. It's, we just ran around the block together. It's wonderful." And um, mm. you know, I felt a little guilty because I felt a little reservation. You know, I couldn't fully mm. fully embrace the idea. Okay, it's all gone. She's healed, and um, and then she had a what is it's not a called a remission, but when you the opposite of a remission, she uh, got sick again. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Became mm-hmm. symptomatic again. Yeah, yeah. And so she suffered feelings of guilt. It's mm-hmm. like it's, it's bad enough that that you're you've got this horrible disease and you're dying from this disease. Uh, yeah. But then to mm-hmm. on top of that, I my faith wasn't strong enough. I, I wavered and, you know, right. and, I, and I let the devil in. Yeah. And she, and she I, suffered from yeah. that. And that's really, you know, that's really sad. David, I'm struck by how many stories that you have where <laughs> I would say religious trauma could be, and its effects are, are very yeah. present. Yeah. 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 And, and there is just to throw this out there um, to listeners there are what uh, we do call adverse religious experiences. So this is also uh, by the Religious Trauma Institute uh, uh, that and some other people. But this is how they would define it. Any religious belief, practice, or structure that undermines an individual's sense of safety or, or autonomy and or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, psychological well-being. All that to say, some people can have AREs but not have religious trauma. Yeah. But everyone who has religious trauma most likely has ARES. So we can have adverse religious experiences. And oh, yeah, yeah, I I went through that. That sucked. Uh, But uh, yeah, I wasn't traumatized by it. So just to throw that in there may be helpful for for some listeners to differentiate the two. Yeah. So I'm wondering about since you say this is, I'm surprised to hear that it's as recent as it is for you that that you kind of uh, have recovered I want to know about mm-hmm. that recovery how did that happen how did you come to recognize that you, that you mm-hmm. had this trauma and then mm-hmm. how and were you already a psychologist had you already been to graduate school and and uh, right. D- right. developed all all those tools Mm-hmm. Well, where my story goes is um, I, I left, I literally ran away from the cult I was in uh, because I wasn't allowed to go to school, but I felt something. No one on either sides of my family at that point went to college, but I, I had, I feel emotionally even talking about this because I, I felt the constriction. I felt like I meant to learn and grow and see the world and yeah and so some things happened in the church where there was uh there was an affair and and all of a sudden i know it's i was in leadership at that time and the pastor and the pastor's wife were arguing in front of me and i'll never forget it because it's so visceral for me but all of a sudden in that moment i i felt a snap in my chest yeah and that was that was it i was done yeah, and I knew right. someone in college, uh, and a couple of months later, I was at a college, and I was I was it was a very tough experience because I was on the floor in panic attacks, 
thinking I was going crazy because I came out of that environment. And this was actually a Christian college, but it was a middle of the road. I would consider much healthier, uh, healthier college at the time. But I didn't know what was real. I didn't know who was God, who who am I, what, who was real, really Christian, not Christian, what was demonic, what wasn't. And it was a very tumultuous, disorienting experience, but yeah. wind up being a very healing one down the road. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, my question is, uh, say more about the healing experience, the, the recognition and the healing. So this crisis that you had was yeah. a moment of recognition, would you say? <coughs> well, that, that got me into uh, another healing environment. I was still inundated with Christian thought. But how things started to unravel a bit, that was sort of, I call it like a, a, a season of healing for me, because there were some beautiful mentors, very compassionate, very wise. And then I worked in the Southern Baptist Church at the time, because I was ordained in the Southern Baptist Church. And then I went to a more liberal, um, uh, I got my Masters of Divinity, Um and then that opened the door for what we call maybe postmodern, post-structural uh, Christian thought, liberal, liberal, liberal theology, yeah, liberation yeah. theology, feminist theologies. And my whole world started to expand theologically. Yeah. And that's when it started to, and by the way, as far as timeline, I received my master's in counseling, okay, 2003, uh Right, then graduate 2007, then Master's Divinity was after that in 2010. But after that Master's Divinity, that's when things started to, the cognitive dissonance could not occur anymore without there being uh, major intrapsychic uh, issues. And I, I had to be real. I had to be more honest. And I always thought, well, why are people so afraid of truth? Like, I don't want to be afraid of truth anymore. Well, well, I mean, a part of me understands because they would, as I was questioning theology, I was called a heretic. I was told I was going to burn in hell. I told that, um, Mark, you know who else doubted uh, God uh, was Satan. You know, if you go back to the Garden of, uh, oh, oh yeah, you know, with Adam and Eve, yeah. you know, hath God really said that this is true? So uh, total fear responses. But that started really unraveling things, being able to see, no, I'm, I'm going for truth at all costs. And uh, yeah, so a lot after that, but that's a little snapshot of Yeah, the whole started. Doubting Thomas thing is, you get that in your mind as part of the programming, you know, well, I mustn't be a Doubting Thomas. Right. Oh my yeah. gosh. I Because w what happens is, if I doubt something that was in the Bible, but here, honestly, it's not doubting what was in the Bible. It's doubting what people's interpretation of what was in the right. Bible. Right. But they say, well, it is God's word, right? And so their interpretation is, quote, the truth. But to doubt that, to doubt thus the Bible would be doubting God. And thus, if I doubted God, then I would be in cahoots with Satan and I would, you know, get God's wrath or punishment. I mean, that's, yeah. I can't tell you how many people felt that level of fear like myself. And it's very real. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Well, one of the things I'm interested in is that in your bio, you went to uh, 
you did work for the Red Cross, and you went uh-huh. to a variety of countries. And were you doing trauma work at this point, or or did um, that, where did this happen in the timeline? Yeah, yeah, my life is quite the story. But I, I wound up getting married in 2010. My wife was in the Navy. Then we we went lived in Japan for about four years. And with that, that time, I was working with the Red Cross because I had to keep sane as a military dependent to do something and then um, getting trained and then going to Korea, um, uh, South Korea. Where else did I go? We went to all different kinds of countries over there. But do, right, doing work in Japan and South Korea. And there was another country over there. But just, yeah, just teaching about trauma and stress and uh, th- uh, doing that work through the, the Red Cross uh, volunteering. So that was cool. Yeah. So, then so when I came you, back to the... In, in, yeah. in that env- environment, were you running into people who were in, who were suffering from re- religious trauma? I guess we're talking about American service people, right? Right, because I did uh, volunteer um, as a therapist. It took a lot of paperwork, and it took about a year and a half for me to finally be able to do that. But yeah, I did group therapy and uh, individual therapy and couple therapy with military dependents. And uh, I mean, with the military and their dependents. So within that, you know, it would come up. I mean, it still comes up. It's It's always come up when that wasn't even my focus. You know, it would right. come up in like, let's say they, you know, their wife was dying from cancer and they would make statements about how God could allow that. And that gets into sovereignty and free will and the topic of theodicy. How could a good God allow such evil in the world? But then them being angry at God for allowing that to happen, thinking that God orchestrated right. that, like right. those kinds of things coming up. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, but I never... It wasn't until years later that it became more of a, a like a a niche, if you will. Yeah. yeah, and putting putting words to the language and more people writing about this and more books coming out. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, we've talked about the importance of community and so on, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering if you've been attacked for writing this book. Mm. I, I would think that would be a danger. Um, yes. Or with, well, all the, I, with all the weirdness in the world, it seems to me like it, it would be a likely thing to happen. It is. Um, I experienced this more dramatically with both books. I wrote a book on, it's called Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. In other words, if people are praying in their room, Aunt Mary, please be healed, got to help her be healed from COVID and encourage her heart. Does that do anything? So I started investigating that, investigating, deconstructing, and reconstructing. But with that, but that book, I gave that to, I was uh, um, attending a church at that time. I gave that book to the pastors, and they read it, and we had a meeting, and they were very firm. Mark, you could never, ever teach in our church. You could, matter of fact, we really encourage you not to attend here any longer. Wow. And I was devastated. Oh, I like I, yeah. I, I thought, like you know, I'm I'm a little feisty, but I, I thought I was trying to be very rational and reasonable with my approach. But it all came down to Mark. If you question God's word, you're questioning God. 
and we can't have that kind of influence here. And that that really that was an attachment injury for me. Yeah. Um, that you know, I don't think I fully recovered. Actually, I haven't really attended a church uh, since then, really. Wow. Um, so, but, yeah, but after that, I in this new book, yes, I've gotten emails. I've gotten, uh, you know, social media messages. Mark, you're a heretic. You're leading people astray. Mark, you're going to go to hell. You know, who do you think you are? You think you're all smart, and you know, but you're wow. b- being used yeah. by Satan right now. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But I'm at the point where we're doing my own work. I can say, listen, um, they are on the journey where they are. They are they. I am me. This is my journey. I know who I am. I know what my truth is. And my truth is more of I don't have all the answers and I'm okay with it as opposed to I have all the answers and this is exactly what it is about metaphysical realities that we can't see, uh, no less. So I'm I can I can deal with it. I have more resilience in that way, but it still hurts. It's still like a little arrow to the heart when I hear it, oh, especially yeah. from friends. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. I'm just looking at my notes here to see if there are other questions that I wanted to ask you. Sure. Yeah, yeah. One that um, I gather you're still a Christian. Ah, <laughs> you know, I was asked that, uh, it's so weird, um, in the last three days by different people, whether I am still a Christian. Yeah. Um, it, it gets into, I would definitely say I'm I'm spiritual. Um, Christian it carries so much baggage with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, like the, even in the Bible, it doesn't, no one, even Jesus never said you had to be called a Christian. That's what people were being called as those were like chilling with Jesus. But they did talk about followers of the way. So I like that. I like follower, follower of the way. And, and Jesus most beautifully represents this beautiful picture of somebody who embodied love, of somebody who was, quote, filled with the divine in such a beautiful way. Um, but I have a bigger picture of, I say, I don't know exactly who God is, but I have this sense that something transcends me. And I always go back to, I don't have enough faith to believe that all of this came about from absolutely nothing. Like nothing, something coming from nothing still, like that's why I can't be a full atheist. It's a mind-boggling, uh, it just, either way. <laughs> right. But I, I'm not too arrogant to say I know exactly how the heck it happened and who the heck was behind the uh, the first cause here, you know. Yeah. Because um, there's so much complexity that it just – I know there's the interesting analogy of how in the world could there be a junkyard and millions of years later – uh, a working 747 jet could miraculously appear fully functioning. Right. I don't know how we can get to this level of complexity if there's not a divine lore in some way moving things into a certain telos, but is somehow uncontrolling. So there is this, what we call process theology, that uh, the divine is uh, here, is with us, but is not controlling like a puppet master 
and thus is a co-created act in every moment to moment experiencing, which is why I would say God is not in control of all things. And that's a very unhealthy and toxic theology, which many people have, that God is in control of all things. Anything that happens is because God has a reason. I just can't buy into that when women are raped and babies are raped and cut up and thrown in a ditch and somehow right. that was God's plan. And right, I just right. can't understand it. But um, so all that to say, I believe in something that transcends, but is imminent. I say it like this, it goes from an author called Peter Rollins. I'm an atheist, a slash theist. I disbelieve in the God that I affirm. Because anytime I affirm God, I'm already committing idolatry. Because my finite brain cannot encapsulate who this, whatever you, you want to define God as. Yeah, yeah. But yet at the same time, there is a theist part within me that says something must be here uh, as a glue, sort of the ground of all being or being itself that somehow, you know, we're, we're all uh, live and move and have our being within. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I know there's a lot of, it's a narrative, you know. Yeah. There's beauty. Yeah. Um, so we know that you don't believe in hell. So the question occurs, do you believe in heaven? <laughs> oh, man. Um, listen, I, I believe, and just as an interesting point, I talk a little about this in the book, that there's a function, there's a communal, especially as I put my sociological hat on, there's a function to these narratives. And even in the earliest form of religion, such as animism, whether it maybe it wasn't a god per se, but maybe ancestors could be angry at you in the afterlife, and you have to. So wherever there's humanity, there's religion, and many times where there's religion, there's afterlife narratives, and many times in the afterlife narratives, there's a punitive sort of there's a heaven and hell narrative, and I think there's a sociological function, especially if you think about hell or a, um, a punitive afterlife narrative, it encourages the traumatized. So it helps people, tribes and communities assure them that their suffering at the hands of other tribes and unrighteous individuals would come to an end. Evildoers would be punished. The oppressed would be rewarded with an eternal uh, life with God, right? A very common theme. Then you'd also have to promote community cohesion. If I knew that to disobey this communal rule would result in a divine being being angry and punishment, I, I would think twice, you know. So there's a, a sociological function. So I have to, if I put that sociological hat with hell, I have to be intellectually honest and say that could very well be true with heaven. I, I have to be honest about it. But I say, what the heck do I know? I've never been there. I, I don't know what the heck's going to happen after we die. Yeah. Yes, the Bible says that there's a heaven, and I know there's a lot of research now in near-death experiences. I don't know. I, listen, I'm a, I'm a human brain with a small brain. I don't know what's going on <laughs> with these metaphysical realities after we die. Can I say that I hope that I hope there is if, if there's a being that transcends and that yet includes me that there's some afterlife experience that has anything to do with love and goodness and truth and beauty. That's cool. But I couldn't say definitively if that was the case. Yeah, I could say yeah. it's a hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can definitely relate to that. Um, 
Um, mm. uh, I had another thought, but I was, oh, what was I just thinking? Oh, yeah, something I wanted, uh, a treatment, you know, I wanted to ask you about altered states of consciousness. Uh, I've mm. long been interested in altered states of consciousness and, um, and, uh, and I, you know, and I link it to religious conversion. One thing is, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things that's known to work for people who were suffering from an addiction, alcoholism, or something like that mm -hmm. is, is if they had a powerful conversion experience that right. somehow would allow them to just change their life radically. And, mm -hmm. and so I've, I've always been interested in that phenomenon and even thought as, you know, as a, as a psychotherapist, you know, how would I create that kind of experience? And I looked into, uh, I, I looked in, into um, sensory deprivation and sensory ah, isolation mm -hmm. as ways to, and actually, mm -hmm. you know, did, did some pilot studies on my own wow. about, wow. about, the, about mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and there was research to to suggest that that possibility was out there. And then, as time moves along, uh, the uh, the advent of psychedelic drugs, and then the whole literature right. uh, on that that's followed, uh, we're now in you know in a place where I'm sure you're aware that there mm -hmm. are psychedelic assist, assisted psychotherapies. Right, so, you right. Know, and I, I see you've had a lot of trauma training. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, and you mentioned uh, in your uh, bio, uh, family systems, I think. Sure. Family, what's the family? It's called family. The idea oh, that in, we... In, internal family systems, yeah. Intern, internal mm -hmm. family systems, which is being uh, touted as maybe the... Uh, the lead way to supplement a psychedelic experience with that mm. kind of model mm -hmm. of thinking. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so what do you think of psychedelic uh, therapy for people suffering from trauma? Um, David, I want to try it myself. I mean, I'm hearing such interesting experiences, even with my own client just recently uh, did MMDA. Um, now, I know that's not legal and there's no like protocol for that. I'm like, wow. Uh, and I was skeptical. I knew he had an appointment. And I literally get an email um, after the event. It was two days later. Mark, my whole life has changed. You know, I've, I've had, you know, an experience, non-dual awareness. And I got what I've always been wanting in therapy. Meanwhile, I've been seeing this guy for some time. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, okay. Right. I want I, I can't help but feel a little skeptical, just like the church experience, you know, like how long will this last kind of right, thing. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, this this is great. I mean, I, part of me is a pragmatist. Whatever works, works. Yeah. And so whether it's psilocybin and, and I know ketamine is a big thing and I got some clients doing that. And people have, yeah, some research and there's anecdotally it's changed my life. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I want to try it. I, I haven't. I'm a little concerned about my brain because yeah. there's mental illness in my family. And I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I should try uh, that stuff. But 
I don't know. It sounds like it's it's working, and uh, there's training around it. Yeah, I, I can speak. I, I can speak yeah. to your concern a bit because ah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, because I have that same concern, and I'm somebody who did uh, in in the '60s took a lot of uh, psychedelic. We don't know for sure what they were, but they purported mm -hmm. to be LSD or purported to be something else. But we also, I was never in a sanctioned study, you know, where you, right. knew, that you, you knew that you were getting the real stuff. Indeed, I've, indeed. I've, I've always wondered about that because I don't think I, <laughs> right. I don't know that I ever got the real stuff. But I did have, um, mm. I, I had some, some very powerful positive experiences that I think helped expand mm. my, uh, my awareness and, and, and uh, belief in the possibility of of uh, higher states of consciousness and um, mm -hmm. and and feeling more open to you know some of the positive scenarios that that have been uh, proffered, uh, but I always found the coming down very rough and went through oh. real mm -hmm. really difficult depression. Uh, mm. It was just hanging on by my fingernails to keep from having to oh go gosh. to a clinic somewhere. And, you know, no, that'll be too humiliating. I'm supposed to be a psychologist and a psychotherapist. Mm. I've got to ride mm -hmm. this out. And so I always wrote it out. Mm. But I now know more about my genetic history than I knew at the time. I, I mm. you know, I l later discovered that uh, uh, my my biological father uh who i did not grow up with uh mm. he you know he had uh he had some episodes that did depression was hospitalized for depression mm. and, and that i had a a grandfather who uh uh supposedly died in a hospital uh, of manic mm -hmm. depressive disorder and so i th you know i think ah so this is maybe what has been going on in my own life in terms of depression. And I, I warned my, uh, I, I also have the impression that it's more likely to follow the male line genetically. I picked mm -hmm. that up somewhere in, in graduate school. I don't know if it's been borne out or not. So I warned my sons, you know, I said, look, if you, if you yeah. ever feel, you know, like super depressed, just ride it out because, you know, there may be a genetic propensity there so mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. don't don't act out on it. Just know that well, okay, this is like some kind of a disease that I'm getting visited by for a little bit, and and if I hang on, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. And um, so that makes me. I so I will not take a psychedelic again, even though I'm uh, I, mm -hmm. I'm excited by some of the stories that I've heard and and. Right, but right. but I know that downside, and I do believe that I have a. I, I believe that if I went to participate in a study, I'd be one of the people that they would rule out because of my genetic history. Right, you know, right, right. You know, mm -hmm. because they're yeah, trying yeah. to they're trying to make sure it turns out well. So uh, so I'm ruling myself out, even though, and I feel a little bit of a loss. Uh, uh, you know, because I would like to be able to do it without with uh, with impunity. Yeah, without but, the side effect there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I don't think I can. 
So, yeah, of course, that's just a, a, it's a decision that you'll have to make for yourself. I but know. I, I, but I have somebody yeah. who's who's been on the cusp of that decision myself. Yeah. I had someone, just uh, a, a friend of mine, who's doing breath work, uh, bre- breath work certification. I'm like, I can get to that state without taking anything yeah. by doing breath work. I'm like, right. okay. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's ways to experience some uh, pretty wild stuff without having to take. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, yeah. I, th- I think we've done it. Is there anything that we haven't said here that you were hoping you'd be able to get across? Yeah, there's can I sh- can I share this gets on um, the part three of my book on healing. Yeah. Can I just talk about that quickly? Sure, sure. Uh, awesome. Um, I just want to say that on in, in my book is divided into three parts. One is looking at the symptoms and the consequences of the religious trauma of hell indoctrination. And that includes this trifold interrelated doctrines, because you can't have an eternal hell without a wrathful God who created it. And you can't have an eternal hell without sinful, evil people to be put there. So it is this interrelation of these three doctrines together that comprise hell indoctrination. But part one is flushing out the consequences and symptoms. And part two and three is looking at how do we heal from religious trauma. Part two is sort of doing it philosophically and sociologically to sort of wiggle away any particular hell beliefs. But we know with trauma work, it has to be much deeper than that. And so if it's truly trauma, as I say, that facts will not heal the tracks and information does not necessitate transformation. So the trauma of hell indoctrination is lodged in the tracks of the subcortical nervous system. And since trauma's imprint is on the mind and body, we know knowledge alone is not the, uh, uh, not a, uh, enough to, to heal it. So part three, I take 120 pages to have neuroscience-based, very up-to-date contemporary practices and principles for healing, right? So to help people to deal with the chronic shame or the unrelenting inner critic or the unworthiness, the helplessness, the insomnia, the ruminations, flashbacks, nightmares, and disturbing feelings that some people can have with religious trauma. And so some of that is imagination work. Some of that is inner critic work, a whole chapter on self-compassion work um, because to me self-compassion is the subversive middle finger to toxic and traumatizing religion where you may have a god who thinks you're sinful and evil in a community what better practice than one can have to start loving themselves and yeah. to be kinder and compassionate themselves and then a whole chapter on untangling parent wounds and then a whole chapter on value work now that I'm cut off from the mothership of religion, who told me what to do, what to believe, some churches like mine, what to wear, what not to wear. Now that I'm not in that, who am I? What do I want? What do I love to do? What do I don't want? And that gets into the last chapter of the book talking about values. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that, that's quite a bit. That's quite a quite a tour that you uh, cover in that book, and and it's it's interesting to reflect that some of these ideas like self compassion and so on. A lot of this this new new thinking and therapy comes has its roots in Buddhism, and mm. and uh, so there's a religious kind of context again, but it's a different it's a different tradition, 
and uh totally yeah, yeah. and it's been secularized in, in some ways yeah but i'm very aware that my buddhist brothers and sisters and everyone in between does self-kindness and loving kindness and self-love work better than uh, any other tribe that i know of yeah 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 yeah. So, so, Mark, it's been great to great to meet you, and uh, I wish you continued yeah. good health yeah. and and success in your work. Yeah. And, um, Wonderful. Yeah, it's been great for, being here. Yeah, thanks for being my guest today yeah. on Shrink Wrap Radio. Once again, I've lucked out with a wonderful guest who I can feel great about singing the praises of. I'm speaking about my guest, Dr. Mark Gregory Karras, author of the book, The Diabolical Trinity, Healing Religious Trauma Due to Believing in a Wrathful God, Tormenting Hell, and a Sinful Self. As I read the book, he did come across as believable and intelligent, at the same time, though, there was a bit of fear in the back of my mind that maybe he would turn out to be a wild-eyed kook. Thankfully, this turned out to not be the case. In fact, I experienced him as extremely well-spoken, thoughtful, open-minded, and honest. The main title of the book, The Diabolical Trinity, is so histrionically ominous and threatening as to raise apprehension. The three elements of that trinity are spelled out in the subtitle, and they are, one, the tormenting belief that God is wrathful, two, that there is an eternal tormenting hell, and three, that one's essence is sinful. These negative ideas were powerfully drilled into Mark, starting out at a very early age via one or more Pentecostal churches, camps, retreats, and or spiritual teachers. Young Mark came from a damaged family riddled with mental illness and no positive influences to counterbalance the damaging messages Mark was getting from these religious sources. The youngster literally had the bejesus scared out of him over a period of years, amounting to what today would be called complex trauma. My previous interviews with trauma experts has made me aware of the ways in which traumatology has changed and become more sophisticated over time. Indeed, Mark let us know that religious trauma is now recognized as a category in the field. The saving grace for Mark was that he is extremely intelligent and has a natural yearning toward truth. As time went on in the church, he witnessed things that his instincts recognized as unhealthy. I would say his intellect and his natural yearning for truth and his education as time went on are what saved him. Indeed, his college studies of psychology, his graduate training in the different schools of therapy, and his studies in a liberal seminary dramatically widened his world, triggering a process of healing that goes on to this day. I was touched and even chastened a bit by the concern he voiced that religious listeners not feel blamed by our discussion. He wanted our audience to understand that he was speaking from his own experience 
and that others might have a very different experience. That compassion spoke very strongly to me and speaks well of him. Also, it's evident to me that he's moved from the absolutism that was drilled into him as a youngster to a mature spiritual wisdom. I recommend Mark's book to any listeners who are wrestling with the sorts of issues we discussed in our interview. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Selena Mitchell. I'm a licensed acupuncturist in Fresno, California, and a student of psychology and an avid listener of your program. I wanted to let you know that your programs have regularly inspired me and have ever since I began listening to them a year ago. Thank you for all the thought and hard work that you've put into your excellent podcasts, and I look forward to listening more in the future. Recently, I realized how often I access your podcasts and look at your website and have decided to make a donation in the hopes that you can keep doing what you do for many more years to come. I plan to make more donations in the future um, as I um, become available to the funds. I encourage other listeners to do the same. Dr. Dave's programs are an excellent resource and are exposing us to nuances within the field of psychology that would otherwise be hard to come by, and it's so readily and um, easily accessible in this format. So thanks again, Dr. Dave, and I look forward to listening uh, in the years to come. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, acupuncturist Selena Mitchell. Thanks to you and other donors who have followed your example. I'm still going strong. Now, speaking of donors, typically listeners support the show by choosing one of the PayPal levels on our support page. For example, $5, $10, $15, $20 or more for 12 months. The rub is PayPal doesn't necessarily let me know or let you know when your 12 months is up and and give you the option to continue. Instead, you need to resubscribe by going back on our site, finding the subscription page, and donating for another 12 months. If you happen to notice that they're no longer billing your credit card, whereas they had before, please do resubscribe. It helps to know we have a steady, predictable income. And thank you for your precious support. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to Dr. Mark Karras for discussing with us his personal transformation and healing and his provocative and important book, The Diabolical Trinity. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Royce Fitz on his new book, The Geography of the Soul, Dreams, Reality, and the Journey of a Lifetime. So until then... This is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous. <laughs>